Hey there. We've got something extra for you this week on No One Knows Anything. It's a recording of one of our live events, BuzzFeed Brews, at the museum in Washington, D.C. It's a conversation about criminal justice reform with Utah Senator Mike Lee, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, and BuzzFeed's Tarini Party. Senators Lee and Booker have been working on a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill that would reduce mandatory minimum sentencing for some nonviolent offenses. Despite broad bipartisan support in both the House and Senate, the bill has still not been put up for a vote. During this hour-long conversation, Cory Booker and Mike Lee talk about their personal experiences with the criminal justice system, Colin Kaepernick and Terrence Crutcher, and whether or not Donald Trump's law and order campaign is shaping the conversation about criminal justice reform in Congress. Introducing the panel is BuzzFeed Editor-in-Chief Ben Smith. Hi, I'm Ben Smith, the editor of BuzzFeed. It is really great to see all of you here for, um, uh, for uh, this series, BuzzFeed Brews, that we're launching today. It's going to be a, a number of um, really policy-focused, forward-looking panels like this through, through, through the inauguration. We launched this series four years ago when, when people were like really surprised that this cat website was covering the news. Um, and we launched it in a bun- uh, some dive bars with like really poor quality audio and tricked senators into coming and talking to us. And um, so like we, I mean, we feel in various ways that we've come up in the world a bit, but this venue is really spectacular and we're incredibly excited to be working with so you. So can we not talk about cats? I mean, is that off? Oh, is this off? the wrong, wrong panel? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You can talk about cats. You can talk about the tweets we were discussing earlier. Yes. Really anything. Uh, um, <laughs> or about the Broadway musical Cats. Uh, that, that's true. That's I, so no, no, only Hamilton. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but um, in any event, we're thrilled to work with the museum. Really, you know, gorgeous venue and an institution that is committed to the First Amendment at a pretty tough time for the American press. Um, and and I think you know I'll, I realize that for a lot of people here the world has always revolved around Washington. But I think in, you know for, for reporters and for me it hasn't for a while. Like the, you know there's been national politics. There hasn't been that much happening here. And I think we really think that, and I think that this is Washington is going to be the center of the universe after this election. And, and there's this chance for really exciting things to happen here. We're going to be investing a lot here. Um, we hope Torini will be breaking a lot of stories here. And, no we're, and, 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 one of, and actually one of the very few issues already where it feels like there is a chance for some motion is criminal justice reform. And so we're really thrilled to have two of the protagonists of, of that story, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey and Mike Lee of Utah, here to, um, here to talk to us about it. So take it away, Torini. All right. So thanks again, Senator Lee and Senator Booker, for jo- joining us today. And thank you guys for coming out here. Uh, Before we get too in the weeds of criminal justice reform, which is what we're talking about today, as Ben mentioned, I wanted to talk about something a bit more personal. Do either of you know anyone who, you know, it can be a family member or close friend who has been arrested or been or spent any time in prison? I'd love to take this opportunity to tell a story about a young man named Weldon Angelos who I've gotten to know. in connection with my efforts on this process. Uh, Weldon Angelos was arrested um, back in 2004 for distributing marijuana, uh, uh, really small quantities, uh, three dime bag quantities over a 72-hour period. And he ended up being prosecuted for that. Um, 
while he was selling these very small quantities of marijuana, uh, three times over a 72-hour period, he had a gun on his person at the time. The gun was not discharged during the offense. The, the gun wasn't even brandished during the offense. Um, but he had it on his person because of the way he was charged and because of the way the, um, Section 924C has been interpreted by the courts, he was charged with a minimum mandatory sentence of 55 years. 55 years. So this is a young man who was the father of two young children at the time. And when he gets this sentence, if he serves it all out, it would be 80 by the time he's out. Um, at the time his sentence was issued, the federal judge who was imposing the sentence, who was himself a former federal prosecutor, and I was a federal prosecutor in the office who was prosecuting him at the time, this federal judge, uh, Paul Cassell, issued an opinion disagreeing with the sentence the judge was about to impose. And in that opinion, he said a number of things. He said, this, this is an unconscionable sentence. There is no question about it. Uh, this guy is getting more time than someone would, would get if they had committed rape in most jurisdictions or if he had committed certain acts of terrorism or kidnapping, carjacking, airplane hijacking. Um, and yet I, this federal judge, have no discretion in this. And then he said something that stuck with me. He said, only Congress can fix this problem. Those words have been echoing around in my head ever since then. They have tormented me. Now, Weldon Angelos was released um, uh, through a miraculous series of events that resulted in uh, the, the prosecutors going to court and requesting uh, a special release, very unusual procedure. But this underlying problem remains. In the meantime, I've gotten to know Weldon's family. I've met Weldon's sister and met Weldon's sons and uh, finally have gotten to know Weldon in person. Uh, rather than just from a distance. Uh, he and I now communicate regularly through social media, and uh, we've had some great visits since he's been back. His story is an inspiring one, and he's going around the country telling his story, and uh, uh, I've enjoyed getting to know him and his family because it reminds me of the fact that these are far more than just numbers that we're looking at. These are real people, and the costs we're looking at are not just economic in nature. They are human costs. People's brothers and fathers and sons and uncles and nephews are being locked up for years at a time, sometimes for decades at a time. And that imposes a tremendous human cost that we need to take into account when we review our federal system. Senator Booker. So um, just first of all, I want to thank um, uh, Busby for having this forum. Um, <clears throat> I think it's really deliciously uh, funny to me that it's called Bruce and um, and you have two of the few United States senators that do not drink alcohol. <laughs> Root beer. Root, Root beer. beer. Yeah, yeah. It's not like we don't drink. I don't think we've ever drank, either one of us. We have no. water here. We do. Yes, yes. <laughs> We're probably the only two who have never had a drink. I, I would imagine Hatch, though, right? Oh, yes, oh, yeah. yes, yes. 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 <laughs> There's... Three never drank in their lives, uh, uh, people uh, that are here. So this is wonderful. Um, the second thing I just want to say, it's, uh, it's an honor to sit next to Mike Lee. I don't think you hear enough um, of the truth about the United States Senate is that there are real uh, friendships or real uh, uh, respect. And uh, Senator Lee happens to be one of those guys, uh, one of the people in the Senate that I have a, a tremendous amount of respect because he speaks um, and has such a moral consistency about him. We obviously don't agree uh, on everything, but what I like about it is where I, he, I know he's often, uh, when, he, when I talk to him, even on tough issues, he's coming from an authentic place. And that kind of trust and that kind of respect gives us a platform for which uh, to work on really important issues. This has been one 
uh, that you have to understand. I'm I'm closing in. Uh, Halloween is my anniversary in the Senate. Um, I will I will be three years in October 31st. And um, he had been working on this issue years before I came to the United States Senate. Now, to your to your question, um, I came with a mission to address this issue uh, because it is very personal for me. Um, I grew up in an affluent, uh, relatively affluent community. Uh, my family was the first black family to move in, as my father affectionately called us, the four ra- raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. Um, and um, th- th- I experienced a very different type of criminal justice system there. Um, you know, fr- we, teenagers do stupid stuff. And when teenagers in my community did stupid, when we did stupid stuff, uh, our interactions with the law enforcement were very, very different. Um, uh, I went to Stanford University, and there's a whole lot of law-breaking going on when it comes to drug laws. Uh, um, we have a nation where our last two presidents admitted to uh, felony drug abuse. Um, uh, and then when I finished law school at Yale, I moved into Newark, New Jersey, the central ward of Newark, New Jersey. For a long period, I lived in high-rise projects. Uh, when I became mayor, I decided to move into the sector of the city, one of the sectors with the most shootings. Uh, and I still live in that central ward of Newark. When I leave Washington, I go back to a predominantly black neighborhood, census tract below the poverty line. Um, and I just have to say, for my entire professional life, for over two decades, living in this incredible community, um, you have to understand that this drug war, which has increased since 1980, our federal prison population by 800%, that's increased the overall prison population in our country 500%, is disproportionately targeted towards poor people, towards minority communities. Uh, So much so that, forget poor or not, just black versus white, there's no difference between drug use, there's no difference between drug selling, but an African-American will be about 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for it. I saw my kids in Newark doing the same stupid stuff the kids in Harrington Park, Ultapan, or Stanford did, but nobody's stopping and frisking people coming home from a party at Stanford. Nobody's getting an FBI investigation to, to do a breakdown of how the drugs are getting onto our campus, but that stuff is going on. And so um, for me, it's profound because you, I took um, another news outlet. Uh, uh, Vox was doing a, a film, and I walked them through my neighborhood, and we stopped um, uh, every black man that we saw and just asked them, uh, have you ever been arrested? Have you ever been away? And we could not find one mm-hmm. um, that did not say yes. Um, uh, th- so I-, I-, I just have to say that this is the worst kind of privilege in the world, uh, I think, the most dangerous, pernicious type of privilege, is that when there is a problem that is serious, but it's not affecting you personally, so it must not really be a serious problem. Mm-hmm. We've gotten to a point now that in some counties in America – one out of every three black people have lost their right to vote because of felony disenfranchisement. Florida, it's overall, as a state, it's one out of five because of the disproportionate focusing of the war on drugs. And so this, this to me, do I know people? Yeah. Do I have friends? Yes. Do I know awful stories about people for doing things that should never have resulted in a conviction, never have resulted in jail time, who now come out of jail and they can't get a Pell Grant, they can't get... You know, you have a criminal conviction in this country for nonviolent drug offense, for doing things that the last two presidents did. You can't get, you can't get a job. You can't get a Pell Grant. You can't get uh, food stamps. You can't get public housing. You can't get loans from banks. Um, one of the pieces of bipartisan, bicameral pieces of legislation uh, that I authored, just to try to get a job with the federal government, mm-hmm. right now you still have to check a box that you've been arrested. 
So this is something I live with every single day and that people reach out to me about every single week. Um, and there is an urgency because we are losing, we are bereft in this country of the talent, uh, 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 the skills, the entrepreneurialism of so many people. And the last thing I'll say about it, which is brutal, is you have a generation of children now, born since 1980 when this massive increase happened, having to grow up with incarcerated parents, millions and millions of American children, so much so that Sesame Street, if you want to cry tonight, put in Sesame Street, incarcerated parent, and see the special programming they have now, clip from Sesame Street focused on uh, uh, these children because it is so emotionally scarring Mm -hmm. to have a parent being taken away from a home for a nonviolent offense, doing things that a good percentage of Congress have done, being pulled out of their out of their homes, uh, parents being pulled out of their homes, and having to be raised with a financial disadvantage and the emotional emotional disadvantage of not having a parent with you. So you guys are both here today. You're a Republican. You're a Democrat. You know, especially. After- I just want to make sure you got that right. Who's who? Because <laughs> it might be very difficult to. to yes. um. So following Ferguson, there was a lot of support and momentum on both sides of the aisle in favor of, in favor of criminal justice reform. What changed? And I just want to interrupt you, because uh, I've uh, got to give Mike credit. Mm-hmm. It wasn't following Ferguson. You've been working on sure. this mm-hmm. for years um, and before I came to the Senate. And it, this is the wonderful thing that most people don't recognize in this country. This is not a left movement. Um, there's, a, there's entire organizations like Right on Crime that have been leading on this for years. But that moment sort of came together after Ferguson when both sides of the aisle, there were members saying that they were supporting criminal justice reform. What has changed in the last few months? Why hasn't this still come up for a vote in either chamber? The shortest explanation, the shortest mm-hmm. answer to that question is it hasn't come up for a vote because the people who are responsible for scheduling the votes have not scheduled the vote. <laughs> if they did, this would pass. It would pass overwhelmingly in both houses, and I think it should be brought up for a vote right now in both houses. <laughs> and I mean by overwhelming, veto-proof supermajorities. Not that we would need a, a, a veto on this, because we wouldn't. I mean, this has been one of the great aspects of this is that it, it not only has it been bipartisan, but we, we, it has been um, an interbranch exercise. The president has been very helpful on this issue and has brought a lot of public awareness um, uh, to this effort. And so, but, but honestly, I, I believe it would pass uh, w- with at least 70 votes in the Senate with a corresponding margin in the House of Representatives. Do you think the police shootings in Dallas or Baton Rouge have changed the calculus for reform at all and maybe kept those leaders from putting this on the schedule right now? I, I don't. I, I, I really don't. Uh, now, I, I do want to be clear in the fact that any time one of these horrible events occurs, um, uh, it's a, a re- reminder to all of us about the fact that we need to do whatever we can to elevate our public discourse and our dialogue about ways that we can um, discourage violence, about ways that we can encourage um, uh, all members of our society to seek peaceful outcomes to difficult situations, uh, that we need to find ways to uh, reduce the use of excessive force on the part of law enforcement and that we need to try to encourage law-abiding behavior among the citizens generally. I don't believe that there is any reason why, just because one of these events happens, 
we should somehow back away from a reform effort, especially considering the fact that this is a reform effort that has at its core uh, the retooling and the refining and the fine-tuning of a criminal justice system that needs to be reformed and that would be reformed if this measure passed. It would be reformed because, among other things, it would allow people to get programming that they need that would help them uh, avoid committing crimes after they get out, making it less less likely that that there would be recidivism, uh, that would make sure that the sentences that are served are are effective in doing what they're there to do, that would make sure that we're not devoting too many resources to locking people up for a longer period of time than they need to be in prison. And so I, I don't see those as any reason at all why we should be shying away from this. Quite to the contrary, I, I, I think some of these tragic events that unfortunately have continued to happen uh, um, should hasten this cause because this is a way to make our criminal justice system more effective and more efficient and gain additional credibility justifiably by doing what the criminal justice system is there to do in the first place, which is make us all safer. Senator Booker, in your conversations, do you find that to be true as well, or do you think this has changed the calculus for reform? Look, again, I I just want to give uh, a lot of credit to um, different sections of the right. So what I see happening amongst Christian evangelical groups when I have major Christian evangelical leaders who in a lot of political issues are, are, are in disagreement with me come to me and say, hey, we're prioritizing this at the top of our priorities for advocacy on Washington. When I have fiscal conservatives, Grover Norquist sitting in my office uh, uh, talking to me about this issue uh, and the urgency of it. When I have the Koch brothers general counsel, Mark Holden, who is, uh, who is now legitimately a friend of mine. And he's here. Um, is he here? Yeah. Really? Yeah. That rat bastard didn't give me a hug? Hey, Mark. <laughs> um, I know him well enough to say this with quite confidence that he married up. His wife is so much nicer than he is. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, the, 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 the peop- fiscal conservatives, Christian evangelicals, libertarians... You get your stripe of the right. They are leading on this issue and leading in a way that, that's, that's worthy of respect. So I just want to say that for a second and stipulate that in, in the beginning. But look, you know, another Republican who I heard on the Senate floor give one of the best Senate speech, floor speeches I've heard this year, uh, this Congress, mm-hmm. uh, was Tim Scott and talked directly to the reality of race in America, that we still have a persistent problem. I ran a police department, a, 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 a police department with a high level of minorities on it, and was, until the end of my term when I started working in partnership with the ACLU, there were issues of implicit racial bias. And, and so there are real issues with uh, police accountability that even the head of the FBI, one of the best speeches I've heard since I've been in Washington, was him speaking about the realities of implicit racial bias that we as a country have to do something about this because the data bears that out. Mm -hmm. And so here we are in an interesting point in American history where you have... And you're talking about Terrence Crutcher. Yes. Mm -hmm. Even the way he was being referred to, um, I mean, there's this dehumanization that seemed to be going on um, um, uh, on the audio. And 
people seem to be more outraged about a NFL player taking a knee than the murder or the, the killing of an unarmed black man. And, and so, so this is an issue that there's nothing new about it in the sense that, except for the fact that we have far more sophisticated means with which to capture a lot of this stuff mm -hmm. on videotape. And what I'm hoping for in, in this country, and I'm hoping to be a part of it, and I'm grateful for Mike Lee, I'm grateful for Rand Paul. I saw an interview when I first got to the Senate of him talking in Time magazine about saying, quoting ProPublica's data about the chances of being shot by a police officer, even if you control for things like violent crime and the like, speaking directly to race, a Republican like the head of the BFI speaking directly to race, if we can't begin to lead as a nation with courageous empathy um, on these issues, uh, we're never going to get to the point that we find the necessary solutions that are going to better unite our country and help us to live by the values that we, that we so uh, ably preach. Senator Booker, you, you brought up Colin Kaepernick. Uh, Senator Lee, I'm, I'm curious, you know, this issue is coming up a lot. Do you think it is appropriate, uh, you know, the protest during the national anthem uh, that he and now several other football players are doing? No. And I, I, I agree uh, uh, with what I understand Corey to be saying, which is I, I don't agree with his approach. And at the same time, I recognize that that's his right to do that. He, he does mm -hmm. have the right to express himself in the way that he wants. I disagree with his approach. I, I think it's disrespectful. But that is his right to choose to send that message in whatever way he deems appropriate. Mm -hmm. So either neither of you would consider... Uh, uh, legislation to uh, no, no. If you were, if you were to <laughs> ban taking a knee, I, I think we can make that pass. Wow, wow. wow. If, if you're at a football game, yeah. would you consider, you know, not standing up to bring uh, attention to this cause or anything like that? I, I, I'm uh, certain that I would not. Um, okay. I, so yeah. let, let me just put it this way. Look, I, I walked through the uh, the Museum of African American mm -hmm. hi History. Incredible. Museum, And I have to say, I fought back tears numerous times, um, especially when I walk through the Medal of Honor and you see African-Americans who've died in every single war in our country. And, and it, the blood of this soil and, uh, and soil across this globe has been shed with the blood of white folks and Jewish folks and Muslim folks. I, I could not uh, in any way ever not stand um, and give reverence uh, uh, to all that took to, to give me freedoms that sometimes many of us take for granted. So here I was in a week where I went to that museum and then I went to the CBC um, uh, 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 event gala this week and I'm standing there and this big, big man comes up to me and says, I want to introduce myself to you. And he goes, I'm Tommy Smith. And immediately I reach in, grab my iPhone show him a picture of me standing in the museum by the statue of, of him with his fist up at the Olympics. The overwhelming majority, if, if I have my data right, the majority of Americans not only disagreed with that, but condemned that action that during the Olympics when the, uh, when the uh, uh, um, anthem was being played, they would put, do that kind of protests. And what I showed him is I took a picture of him with his fist up in the screen back in behind him in the museum was Muhammad Ali speaking. It was a beautiful uh, uh, picture. And, and when Muhammad Ali refused to serve, the majority of Americans disagreed with him. Mm -hmm. Now, 
we look back in the perspective of time and see not the action, but the cause for which they were fighting for. And, and so I just, how can we sit still? Like, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to be senatorial when I know I'm going to return, uh, uh, depending on when we leave. Uh, um, Could be a while. Thursday, I look at him because his leader is the one that's going to make this decision. Um, th- let's, call, let's call it with Thursday. With input from yours. With input yeah. from mine. Yeah. I should play that. Yeah. Our, both of our leaders yeah. have responsibility for this one. But I'm going to go back home to the central ward of Newark. And, and, and how can I even sit still when I know that there are families that are suffering from the unequal application of the law mm-hmm. in a country that swears the exact opposite? When there are m- men like described by Senator Lee who are in prison right now. Think about this, the legislation that we have, people talk about this legislation. One of the major parts of that legislation will affect thousands of Americans are people that were convicted before 2010 when the disparity between crack and, and powder cocaine was 100 to 1, not based on science, not based on data, based on fear and bigotry. It was corrected to 18 to 1. I'm not satisfied with that. And so now those people who were arrested that time have watched people who got arrested after them for the same crime and have left before them, wallowing in prison because we failed to make it retroactive. That's just one example of of dozens of issues of injustice that senators agree with, prosecutors agree with, police officers agree with, that are all going on right now that is common ground that we could do something to liberate Mm -hmm. individuals who are unjustly being held. Now, if if we decided to do this to another group of Americans, say we decided to single out affluent white Americans and instead disproportionately go after them now, just with our police force, disproportionately investigate, surveil, arrest. What if we were only going after teenagers and 20-somethings that were doing crime? Only college campuses. There would be a revolutionary spirit unleashed in this country mm-hmm. to end that injustice. And so Colin Kaepernick, Kaepernick takes a knee. I, jo- we jo- I join Senator Lee in, in, in saying I would never do that. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, I know people died in wars to protect their freedom to do it. Mm-hmm. But that's not the issue. That can't be where we stop. Martin Luther King said profoundly in a speech in the 1960s, I condemn the violence of the riots. I condemn violence. But if we cannot also condemn the conditions of injustice in our country with at least the equal amount of ire, then it says something about us. And so this is an issue that I can't be comfortable about. This, this is an issue that goes to the fundamental truth of who we say we are, what kind of country we say we're going to be. Sorry. Can I speak sure. briefly to that? I, I, I'm so glad. Uh, uh, first of all, I love speaking with this guy because he <laughs> makes me feel sm- smart just by listening to him. I learn <laughs> how, how, how does he say things that are so <laughs> profound. I love it. Um, and, I, I, and I'm so glad that you focused on the uh, uh, crack to powder 
um, uh, retroactivity fix. Uh, this is a problem. Just this last weekend, I met a woman whose relative um, was a woman who was sentenced to life in prison for a first-time offense involving the transportation. She was a courier or a mule involving crack cocaine. She was sentenced prior to this correction in 2010. So she's part of the uh, group of people who would be affected by this. But let's think about that. Uh, we, we, we changed this to from 100 to 1 down to 18 to 1 in 2010, mm -hmm. but didn't make it retroactive. So whether or not you get a really lengthy sentence that's a, uh, uh, a lot more disproportionate based on crack cocaine versus uh, powder cocaine, whether or not you get a really long sentence or a somewhat shorter sentence is determined just by the fortuity of when you were charged and convicted. Why is this so difficult? And interestingly enough, this seems to be one of the things. Most of the time when people oppose this, they don't really oppose any aspect of the bill. Sometimes some of the people who oppose this bill just say, look, if this bill will make it likely that anyone gets a shorter prison sentence than they would otherwise get, then I'm categorically against it. I kid you not, that is how some people oppose it. Some of those who oppose it for actual reasons will point to this uh, crack-to-powder uh, disparity reduction and its retroactivity. But I challenge anyone who makes this argument to give me a principled reason why that should be the case, a principled reason why we should allow someone sentenced prior to the 2010 adjustment to continue to uh, work under, on, under this 100-to-1 uh, uh, crack cocaine-to-powder cocaine disparity. Mm -hmm. Another related issue that hasn't been getting as much attention as the Colin Kaepernick uh, protest um, is that inmates across the country right now are um, engaged in the biggest work stoppage in, in U.S. prison history. Uh, they're saying that the conditions they're working in, they've compared it to modern slavery. Do you, do you sympathize with them? Do you think that they should still be compelled to work for free as they are in, in many states today? Uh, look, I always hate to give a, a, a lawyerly answer, but I'm going to have to here. Uh, uh, when, when we look at, um, at the, what the 13th Amendment prohibits, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't speak to this. I mean, it, it, it allows people to be punished and doesn't prohibit. Uh, the, the prohibition against slavery and involuntary servitude doesn't apply to people who are, who are in prison. Mm -hmm. That is not to say that the conditions under which they're laboring are always um, and necessarily to be presumed to be uh, fair and just. I don't know enough about this circumstance to be able to comment on it meaningfully, other than to point out we do need to keep in mind that uh, uh, as far as the Constitution views it, uh, and it's interesting that this is the one instance, the Constitution and all 27 of, it, of its amendments, with only one exception, the Constitution applies uh, essentially entirely to the conduct of government and not to the conduct of individuals. The 13th Amendment is the one exception to all of that, uh, where it applies to the conduct of individuals. And it prohibits each of us from engaging in any activity amounting to slavery or involuntary servitude. But it does not include those who are serving a prison sentence. But again, that is not to say that, the, uh, the, that we necessarily presume that the circumstances under which a prisoner is laboring uh, uh, are, uh, 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 amount to fair treatment. Do you, so do you sympathize with them? Yeah, I'm not familiar okay. enough with their circumstances to be able to comment on it credibly. All right. What about you, Senator Booker? So look, um, my generation, our generation, we're both ex-gen 
folks, we inherited from our grandparents the best infrastructure on the planet Earth, um, which created an environment. You know, when you give kids electricity or entrepreneurs, you know, they can do great things with light, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, invent research. When you have roads, bridges, it creates a tremendous environment for businesses to thrive. Now, we allowed that to crumble. We've gone from ranked number one infrastructure on the planet Earth to now about, uh, depending on which indice you look at, World Economic Forum keeps a good one, around 15, 16. Now, the only area where we've, during my lifetime, during, uh, where we've kicked butt, we beat the world, we put them to shame on building out infrastructure, uh, is in building prisons and the prison industrial complex. The time, time I was in law school, to the time I became mayor of the largest city in New Jersey, we were building a new prison about one out of every, every 10 days. Uh, um, that's how kind of infrastructure we were blowing up here. There are now more people in the South living on, in prisons than on college campuses. Now, this is a time of construction and filling of prisons that has, in my opinion, uh, helped us to lose sight about what the ambition of society is in terms of crime and punishment. Uh, the onslaught of private prisons, to me, is, is deeply offensive uh, um, to the ideals of this country, where private prisons can make profit off of uh, the imprisonment uh, of another American. Um, um, and so when you ask me a question like this, I try to get back to the core of what I want. Um, and now look, the overwhelming majority of people imprisoned in the United States will come out. They're coming home. And I can show you again, I, I, I'm a guy that when I became mayor, I, I, this is why I'm so bipartisan because I don't care. I work with the Manhattan Institute. I work with Chris Christie. I was just trying to fix stuff when I was mayor. And I used to always say, God, we trust, but everybody else bring me data. I, I want to see the numbers and the data. And so I could unequivocally show you. In fact, I'd love to do it. It's a very fiscally conservative way to look at things. I'm only going to pay you if you produce the results. I'm going to pay you for it. It's the way the private sector does it. So as, as government, I can look at evidence-based programs that reduce recidivism dramatically that we are not investing in as a society because we've gotten so retribution-based in our prison system and not about restorative justice-based. And so we end up paying over and over again because we have people maxing out of prison where they've had nothing constructive, not to mention not only nothing constructive, but they're put in environments where, where they're treated like animals. And, and frankly, my sympathy is often more with prison guards who are put in environments where they have to work in, 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 in an environment so dehumanizing to others. We created a system that, that, that just does not work, and that's why we have recidivism rates that some of our competitors, because I'm, I'm economically, I just want to compete. I want to win economically. And I look at our competitors, we're carrying trillions of dollars more of expenses over time than our competitors who do not have our prison population. Okay, And the other thing that we're doing is our competitors get it. They want to do things in prison, so when people leave, they never come back. We don't do those obvious things. We, dehum- we create environments that, that's just dehumanizing. Let me give you an example of this. Solitary confinement. Juvenile solitary confinement, there is a consensus amongst healthcare professionals that this is akin to torture, it does such traumatizing psychological damage that the majority of kids who commit suicide in prison are kids in solitary confinement or, or after they get out. And so we're doing these kind of practices 
that are so damaging to people and, and we're not treating their drug addiction? We're not dealing with their mental health crisis? We're, we're taking poor people and making it even harder for them to be economically competitive when they get out? So do I have sympathy with people that in prison and saying, hey, we could do this better? That could really work for you all. Lower your costs. Increase the ability for people to provide for their families. I'm all for that. And I can only imagine that if I was in prison for, for again, like 535 of us in Congress, a lot of us should have been arrested. <laughs> uh, no, if we had an equal justice system. If we had an equal justice system applied to college campuses the way it's applied to other communities, a lot of us would have criminal convictions. Maybe not two teetotaling, non-drinking, non-smoking <laughs> guys, but a lot of our peers would have criminal convictions. And, and so if I was one of those people that went through the system, this is what I mean, if something affects you, this is why the opioid crisis to me is fascinating to watch. Because there are people screaming, don't arrest my child, treat my child. And, 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 and it's really changing the way people are thinking about drug addiction. And the opioid crisis is waking a lot of people up because it's visiting communities that often didn't have the kind of criminal uh, 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 oversight that, that has been existed before. So yeah, I, I, am I sympathetic? Absolutely. Would I want to end solitary confinement, end private prisons? I can go through the things I would reform. Even something as simple as giving people who are a parent a chance to communicate with your child. Do you know what it costs to make a phone call from prison? How much? For a minute, you're talking dollars per minute. And, and so here, poor folks, we know the data. Again, just look at the data of what it means to keep those family connections as best you can, what it does for that child, and also what it does for the behavioral elements of, of the person that's in prison. These are stuff that works if we just invest in them, but yet we're stripping all this stuff away in the name of retribution and punishment, mm -hmm. and we don't understand that we're making the situation worse for us as taxpayers and for us as a, as a, as a nation that believes in the highest of humanitarian values. of actually passing legislation and, and the one that you two have been working on recently in the past few months uh, Donald Trump has been talking a lot about you know taking a tough sorry who <laughs> have, you, have you heard that name I, before? I, don't <laughs> I don't know who that is I don't think he's a Republican <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's a Republican is he a Republican <laughs> <laughs> really? uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't get my friend in trouble. <laughs> uh, We're both so trying to behave tonight. <laughs> Trump in recent months has really pushed a, a tough on crime approach. Do you think that's influenced or changed the minds of any Republicans that you work with in Congress? No, no. I, I, and I, well, I, I want to be very clear about something. He has not opposed our bill. Has and he told so, you that? No, but he has not opposed our bill. Okay. I don't if think he, he had opposed our bill, I would, I would have noticed <laughs> okay. if he yes. had opposed our bill. Yes. And uh, so I'm just going to assume that in the absence of opposing the bill, then, you know, uh, silence at, he lets at, at times. Known. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And why wouldn't he want to support this bill? I mean, look, 
This bill saves money, but more importantly, this bill saves lives. It salvages human lives. Human beings should not be treated as cattle, and they certainly shouldn't be treated as mere numbers and institutionalized just because some law passed a few decades ago decided that that was a good idea. If we are never going to go back and, and look at our criminal laws well, once we put them in place, in other words, if the criminal sentencing system is a one-way ratchet that can never be reversed, we're in for a rough ride. And so I, I don't think Donald Trump is against this bill. I don't think he would be against this bill. And I, I don't think any of the comments that he has made undercut the need for the bill. There, there are very few, by the way, very few people in the United States Senate who have expressed any reservations about it. There are a handful who have, and uh, I, I like them and I respect them, but they're mistaken. But he's talked a lot, of, he's talked a lot about crime skyrocketing sure. and you know, uh, concerns about violent offenders being released. All Those of which are reasons to pass this bill, every one of which are. I mean, look, if you're worried about crime rates rising, if you're worried about violent offenders, if you're worried about uh, uh, crime affecting communities, you should pass this bill because this bill makes it less likely that a federal prisoner upon release is going to commit a crime again. This bill gives people access to the programming they need in order to make sure they're rehabilitated by the time they leave. And this bill makes it more possible for us to devote more of our federal criminal justice resources toward actually catching and deterring crime and punishing crime appropriately. You know, uh, I, I, I've done some research on the percentage of the department's budget, uh, the Department of Justice's budget that ends up having to go to the Bureau of Prisons, and it's been on the increase. And uh, before long, it'll be uh, in the range of uh, uh, about a third. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the more we can streamline our criminal justice system and make sure that too much of it isn't going into the Bureau of Prisons, the better off we're going to be. If you want to make this country safer, pass the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act. I just want to give two highlights to that sure. because he's so righteously right on this issue. First of all, <laughs> let me, but, just, but it's just like the logic of it. Would you rather take the thousands of people that are still in jail because of this crack cocaine failure to make it retroactively, take five of them out and put a few more cops on the street? I mean, it's as simple as that, to prevent serious crime. Take some nonviolent offenders, lower this. This bill that we have creates billions of dollars of savings. But now I want to get to the other fact that he is alluding to. The states are already leading on this issue. Red states are already leading on this issue. You've got a Republican governor of Georgia going around to black communities talking about, hey, I lowered the black male imprisonment rate 20%. And guess what happened to crime? It went down. The states are lowering their prison population. You're seeing with just about all of them, they're lowering their crime rates as well. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just this logic that if you take somebody who's not... And by the way, there are some people that belong in prison for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to nonviolent drug offenders, how could we be having this conversation when there's so much evidence to the contrary that you can lower their sentence, do the right thing when you're in prison and empower them to succeed when they come out. But there is concern from some of your Republican colleagues in terms of reducing uh, some of the mandatory minimums. Um, you know, Senator Cotton, Senator Cruz, they've brought some of this stuff up. What is your Cruz-Cotton strategy? Is there one? How do you get these people on board? Well, first of all, we outvote them. When the vote is taken, we win, <laughs> they lose. Um, 
So no efforts to try to convince them. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I want to make very clear there have been uh, thousands of efforts mm -hmm. to try to convince them. It's just that thus far those particular efforts haven't succeeded. But I've succeeded with a whole lot of other Republicans. And, uh, it, you care it, to name some names? It is working. <laughs> but look, um, honestly, if, if, you had, if you had the vote right now, you'd have a whole lot more Republicans voting for it uh, than you would uh, uh, voting against it. But once people learn what this bill actually does, and just as importantly what it doesn't do, they get a lot more comfortable with it. And, you know, th there is a, a sentiment out there. Sometimes um, if people approach this from the standpoint that they – um, uh, love m mandatory minimums and never want to reduce any of them, that's a problem. And it is likewise sometimes a problem uh, uh, for similar reasons if someone says there is never ever an appropriate use for any mandatory minimum uh, anywhere. Let me explain what I mean before you decide that you disagree with me on that. It, it, let's take a particular crime. Let's say uh, the crime like uh, the armed robbery. Uh, at some point between five minutes and 500 years, you cross a line beyond which a minimum mandatory is unreasonable. So uh, maybe you think it should only be punished for five minutes or for five days or for five years or something like that. Somewhere in there is a mandatory minimum that a lot of people will be uh, able to accept. Um, but I think we definitely have passed the line of reasonableness when we're giving a 55-year sentence to a guy who sells three dime bags or a lifetime sentence to a woman who is a courier uh, carrying some uh, crack cocaine. We have crossed that line in many instances in our federal criminal code, and we've just got to revisit that line. What's, what's Senator Cruz's response when you bring this up? I mean, you, you, know, you guys are best friends. When you, when you bring this up with him, what is his response? You know, I, I, I have a policy that I really try never to deviate from when it comes to colleagues in the Senate. It's not just uh, Senator Cruz, but uh, my colleagues generally. When I have private conversations with colleagues and they give me their reasons, I don't speak for them. I'm going to let them not speak publicly. Not even at BuzzFeed Bruce. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, thus far, I've not recognized a BuzzFeed Bruce exception to okay. that rule. Right. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm going to let them speak for themselves individually. But I, I can say as, as a group, those who oppose it, uh, on the Republican side of the aisle usually come up with a, a more generalized uh, kind of an argument saying, I think we need to be harsh on crime, we need to be tough on crime, we need to be not softening our approach mm -hmm. to crime. To which my response is always the following. If you want to be tough on crime, pass this bill. Because this bill will make us more effective and more efficient in the way we fight crime. Just because we're treating someone with dignity that they deserve because they're human beings and they have a soul doesn't mean we're not being smart, smarter, and tougher in the way we fight crime. That's what this bill does, and that's why we need to pass it. Going back, uh, going back briefly to Donald Trump here. Um, if he does become president, this or of any other... President of what? Be more specific. <laughs> <laughs> President of this country, okay. um, do you think you will be able to work with him on this particular bill if it doesn't already pass by then, or any other criminal justice reform proposals that you come up with? Oh, yeah. Okay, so first of all, I, I want to make clear, this effort's not going away. First of all, this does need to pass this Congress, and I challenge our, our uh, 
our, our friends up the hill who make the decisions on scheduling votes to schedule a vote. Let us pass it, this Congress. If, heaven forbid, that doesn't happen, I want to make one thing very clear. This issue is not going away. We're not going away. Are you going to retreat from this? Uh, no retreat. No surrender. Cory uh, Booker is <laughs> not retreating. I'm not retreating. Uh, regardless of who the president is, uh, uh, as of uh, uh, January 20th, uh, uh, this issue is not going to go away. I hope it has been passed by then. But if it is Donald Trump, if it's Hillary Clinton, we're going to keep pushing this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm convinced that we will continue to make the case, and I'm convinced that we will uh, persuade whoever is president to sign this into law. Senator Booker, um, Secretary Clinton has been criticized in the past for some of the comments. She's been criticized? <laughs> I've never, Shocker. ever Uh-oh. heard a criticism of Secretary Clinton. For, for some of the comments in particular that she's made about black youth, the, the super predators phrase, um, some of the you know, tough on crime measures that her husband signed into law, how do you think she's handled her past on the campaign trail on this particular issue so far? First of all, I love how a woman suddenly running for president and she's being held accountable for everything her spouse does. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, a very big double standard there, um, um, which is hard for me to say because I have no spouse. Um, um, <laughs> um, but look, so there was a, a period in this country where we had a lot of fear and a lot of concern and, and legislation passed. Um, I, I was, I was in, 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 at Yale at the time studying um, and was distraught by the legislation I saw pass. But a lot of folks were here were dealing with And by the way, African-Americans uh, in Congress voted for the crime bill and a whole, whole lot of things. I give a lot of room for people uh, to evolve. Uh, um, you, you know, I'm a guy that when I became uh, mayor of the city of Newark, I refused. Uh, you know, mayors have the power to marry people. I, I refuse to marry a- anyone. Uh, because everyone in this country couldn't marry and and uh, watched how this country has now moved, the laws of this country have moved. And uh, I saw how Secretary Clinton and President Obama had certain views and, and they've changed your views. So that's the past. I, I really am looking to the future. And I'll tell you this, Secretary Clinton, uh, her ver- very first policy speech, she, she talked to my office before she gave it, uh, was on criminal justice reform. Um, uh, she, I've had many conversations with her. In fact, uh, right before the convention, um, when she called me up uh, to inform me I might not get a certain job. Um, <laughs> um, 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 she, Which job was that? I don't know uh, what job that was necessarily, but, uh, but some job. Um, uh, that she, The first thing we talked about after, after sort of clearing that, uh, and then she gave me some instructions on my speech, and then, uh, and then, she, uh, then we went right into talking about criminal justice reform. This is a passionate issue for her um, that she is determined to do. And, but I, I agree with my, my, my friend and colleague, which is I, it does not matter who the president is in this sense. It matters a lot to me, frankly. But it doesn't, because we are not giving up this fight. And, and we have the majority of the Senate with us. We have the majority of the House with us. We have the majority of the American people with us. We've got from everybody from Newt Gingrich uh, 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 to 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 uh, Dick Durbin, let's throw him in the mix. <laughs> your partner um, uh, agreeing with us on on these issues. We are going to make this nation safer by making our criminal justice system reflect our highest values and aspirations. It's going to happen. It's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when. But I want to echo what he said. We are not giving up on this Congress. 
We absolutely are not. That's what Mark and I were, uh, uh, who's hiding in, in the back there, we're talking, uh, um, we're talking about when he was in my office. What's the strategy to get it done in this So Congress? you're still thinking lame duck instead of pushing it to next year. You think that you can ha make it happen in the next few months? Senator Lee. Look, uh, if you're asking me if I can make it happen, I, I, I don't have the power to schedule the mm -hmm. votes. Uh, I, I would love for it to be scheduled today or tomorrow or at any time between now and when this Congress ends. And if it doesn't happen then, I would love for it to be scheduled right after we convene in the next Congress. But I don't see any reason why we ought to wait. I mean, this is something that's moved through committee. It passed with an overwhelming bipartisan supermajority vote of 15 to 5 in committee. It has received extensive um, uh, uh, examination in committee hearings and in markup uh, on the Senate side and on the House side. This is ready for floor action, and if brought to the floor, it would pass overwhelmingly. So can I guarantee that that's going to happen? No, but I'm going to continue to advocate for it as long as I'm in the Senate and, and breathing. All right. Well, I'm getting the signal over there from the staff, but uh, thank you so much. Who's giving you the signal? <laughs> Those lovely Mark. ladies over there. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us. We really loved having you guys uh, here for the first Can I just make an group. appeal? Just I'm sorry, because sure. both of us know, again, what I was saying, the change doesn't necessarily always come from Washington. It comes to Washington. If people are watching this... Please understand that there's those 10 two-letter words. If it is to be, it is up to me. Nothing's going to change unless you do. And if you allow this to be an issue, oh, that's really a shame, but don't engage in the fight, please understand, King said more eloquently, to paraphrase him, that the problem today is not the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people. It's the appalling silence uh, in inaction of the good people. Uh, um, don't be one of those good folk. Uh, get involved in this fight. There, in every single state, there's organizations that are involved in this. Uh, Congress people, have you let your voice be heard? Your silence is contributing to the problem that we have today. Uh, please raise your voice and get engaged. Unless you guys have, uh, you know, anything to say on the other big news of today, which uh, the Brangelina split, you guys are free, free to go enjoy the, the tasty snacks. But, you know, there's one thing that Brad and Angelina both agree on, which is that Congress needs to pass the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act. Yes, they do. And I, I'm pretty devastated because, um, given their net worth, I was hoping to be adopted by them. Um, so that's... That, that shot is over. <laughs> yeah.